of what Amos is going to help us understand. And it's taken for granted in three different areas, and I'll name all three for you right now. Responsibility, redemption, and revelation. The three things the Israelites took for granted are responsibility, redemption, and revelation. The first one, responsibility, is mentioned in Amos chapter 2, verses 6 and 8. If you noticed it when it was read by Sam, it describes very well the situation you would be in if it played in a television in front of your eyes what Israel was like in this time. Whether it was in the capital city of Samaria or another nation, a city close by, Bethel. You could walk through the city and you would see massive trade going on. You would see hustle and bustle everywhere, but you would also notice in every small corner you could look, there would be homeless people all over the place. And you would notice them especially because huddled among them and going to and fro between different places were very, very not homeless people. Incredibly rich and privileged people. People wearing jewelry and colorful robes who couldn't help but bring attention to themselves with all the sparkle and shine that their jewelry must have glistened off of them. And those people would be going quickly to various places, either from the holy places to their homes or from their homes to the holy places. And what they would be doing there would be a number of things, mainly extracting money and clothes, whatever was given to them from the poorest people in the nation and committing serious and obvious public sin with each other while in the same breath praising the God who saved them. They'd be happening at the exact same time. And it's, it's easy to kind of see the idea if you understand in verse 8 when it says they lay themselves down on garments taken and pledged. The, the idea there is that these poor people only had so much to give. And one of the things that they would sometimes give is their clothes. And when they gave their clothes, it was an admonition of the respect that they had for these people. But the law clearly stated that if they gave them a cloak especially, they would return it at night. And the reason is very simple. It's because Israel is super cold at night. And if it's super cold at night, people need cloaks because not everyone has a bed and not everyone has blankets. And the cloak was supposed to act that way, but problem was that the leadership in this area was so absorbed in their personal sin that they disregarded the fact that they must give anything back and instead demanded more and more and more and in effect allowed this system of poverty with a massive amount of people to continue as some kind of tribute to the privilege that they received at the top of the hierarchy. And in this way, Amos consistently comes back to this point that you are allowing poverty to happen in this town. Chapter 4, verses 1, he says, you oppress the poor and you crush the needy. Chapter 5, verses 7 says, you turn justice to wormwood. Wormwood is like a bitter fruit. It tastes awful and cast down righteousness to the earth. Chapter 5, verse 11 and 12 says, you trample on the poor and you exact taxed grain from him. You afflict the righteous who take a bribe, and you turn aside the needy in the gate. And chapter 8, verses 4 says, You who trample on the needy and bring the poor to an end. Poverty is bad 
in general. I think it's pretty easy with anybody you meet, Christian or otherwise, to affirm that point. But with the people of God, it's particularly heinous because it is so unlike God to disregard the poor. Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1, the prophet Isaiah tells the people why he was sent to talk to them. By the way, Isaiah was preaching in the same period as Amos. And he said, The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. It would take a long time to collect every single verse in the Bible that talks about caring for the poor and the needy. And he's getting at a particular point with the people in Amos. You guys know what an oxymoron is? Some of you do, some of you don't. When I was younger, oxy was what dudes used to get their pimples gone. So I thought it was just a dude who couldn't like fix his face. I know some of you guys get this. (laughs) Um, Somebody try and explain to me what an oxymoron is. That's right, yeah. So it's two words in a phrase that contradict each other. So here's a couple of examples. Act naturally. Alone together. Amazingly awful. Bittersweet. Clearly confused. Dark light. Deafening silence. Definitely maybe. Jumbo shrimp. Sweet sorrow. These are two things used together that actually are either opposite of each other or completely contradict each other. And the point that Amos is making to the people of God is that it is oxymoronic for you to think that doing godly things for God is acceptable and right in God's eyes if you turn around and disregard people. One commentator said this really, really well in particular when they said, it is impossible to be right with God if you are wrong with men. It is impossible to be right with God if you're wrong with men. And in this sense, I think a lot of that should be obvious. Sexual immorality is mentioned in this passage, and I think all of us would have a healthy understanding of how intimacy in marriage is the restriction and the good gift that God has given people. And Amos himself knows that this is obvious to them, And he doubled downs on that while talking about how that has affected their love of poor and how poverty seems to be a disregardable system to them. And the problem is that he is saying that is completely contradictory to everything God is. And if he were to govern a city, it would look the opposite of the city that his people have been given as stewards. Not steward like my last name, steward with a D, which means people acting as God on God's behalf. This was the description that Aaron and Moses were given to the people of Israel when they were told, you will be like God to them. And the way that they governed the city of God was so ungodlike that punishment needed to come to them. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And in Matthew 25, Christ is talking about when he returns, how he is going to address the people based on their actions. 
who are his people and who are not. And he says he is separating them, sheeps and goats, and he himself is the shepherd addressing them and explaining to them these qualifications that he is looking for. He addresses them by saying, come you who are blessed by my father. This is starting in verse 33 or 34. Come you who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and we gave you drink? And when did we see a stranger and come and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Now, if, if you take that, doesn't it seem weird that God is somehow making some kind of qualification to enter the kingdom of heaven? What is is Christ explaining here a works-based theology. Is the way to heaven being good to poor people? Well, not necessarily. What, what he's saying specifically is that he is looking for those people who he has transformed their heart. And if your heart has been transformed by God, you will seek to be like God. And addressing those people who are helpless and who have nothing to give you, to give grace to them, to give gifts to people who could give you nothing in return, that is part of the essence of the love of God. It is his very heart. And if this is disregarded, then you have no place calling yourself part of God's kingdom. First John 2, 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way that he walked. It's the great privilege of being a Christian. And that's important to know because in a sense, if, if we are to understand giving and helping those in need, we have to understand the kind of helplessness that God has in mind here. And it's not just a physical poverty. It is also a spiritual poverty. And the fact that if you recognize yourself, like we've talked about in the last couple of weeks, as a person who brings nothing to God's table, that we have nothing before God's throne, yet he poured out his love on you and provided for you. It should change your heart and motivate you in a way that seeks to take the responsibilities God has given you, to reflect his image that he created you in, and seek to serve him in the way that you were called to serve him giving to real homeless people, like Pastor Isaiah talked about last week, widows and orphans, that's a real way to apply this passage. It, it very much is. And specifically, the people of Israel were in jeopardy of that. But the reason was because their hearts had no qualification that God had really done anything for them. That though they said and gave lip service to God, they didn't really appreciate in their hearts the kind of thankfulness that is required and a blessing to exercise as a believer. And if you know your New Testament well, 
you'll know that that was the entire mission of Christ. Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And as we consider that, that we aren't to take the commands and concerns, the responsibilities of God for granted, like the Israelites did, that's going to expand very comfortably into our second point, which is redemption. The second thing that the Israelites took for granted was redemption. And you can see that in Amos chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Now, we might understand, because we've talked about it, the kind of spiritual poverty we've brought to the table, but the way that you really know something well, the best way is to experience it. You're going to know, for example, like myself, if I tell you you should be scared of bears, it's hard to explain that. But if I tell you and remember in my head the time I've been chased by three bears, you know how much I know bears are scary. And in an interesting way, what Amos brings up with the people is that they should really know how bad it is to be in poverty and needy because they were in the lowliest and neediest position a human being can be in, which is a slave. Almost all of their family members and generations going back were slaves. You can see that and probably understand that reference in verse 10. How the people of Egypt were evil oppressors over the people of God. And God, for no other reason other than to be gracious and let his name be known to all the nations in the world, destroyed them through plagues and in bringing and raising up leaders like Moses and like Aaron and demonstrating his power over everyone and saying, no one is messing with my people to a fact where his people went from being slaves to children of God. And that's what that verse nine references to the Amorites because after they left, they wandered for 40 years and they went to take the promised land. And the promised land's first foe against them, which was the difference between them inheriting the land and still needing to conquer the land, were the Amorites. And in defeating the Amorites, God demonstrated his power again, because even Amos describes in our passage in verse 9 how mighty an enemy these people were, that they, were, they had height like the height of the cedars, and they were as strong as the oaks. Under Joshua's leadership after Moses died, there was no chance that they could defeat such a powerful enemy. And God demonstrated that he could in two very amazing ways. The first way, he stops the sun. That there is no longer a cycle of the sun going and turning into darkness. And he said that as a promise saying, this sun will only start moving again when you have defeated the Amorites. And the second was even more dramatic, which is that he fired hailstones upon the enemies of Israel. And it says in Joshua 10 verse five, you can read the story there, that there were more who died of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. God demonstrated he was the one who granted this victory. When the Israelites recall that, and the reason Amos brings that up is because if they remember those moments, there's a bit of ego in their exegesis. And the way that they remember those moments, we're interpreting them as we were better than those people. 
And Amos definitively says in chapter 6, verses 3, asking a rhetorical question, are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? And the answer is no. You were not better than anyone else. They thought they were special, and that's why they were saved. But it was the exact opposite. You were saved, and as a consequence of your salvation, you are a special people. And Amos even enraptures that whole idea in the fact that he opens this book with condemnations on every other nation around. The best way to describe it are like tiny little Obadiahs littered in a single chapter. And as the list goes on and on, Israel is probably feeling better and better about their status before God in light of all these other nations until the list runs out and the bottom of the list of nations that have done evil in the sight of the Lord is Israel. And all of a sudden they don't feel so great anymore. And all of this is a reality of reflecting on their status before God as something they were earned rather than something they were given. It is redemption taken for granted. So if we step back for a sec and just think about that, we need to consider how is it that our own redemptions, if you understand the work that Christ has done for you, how do we not take it for granted. Because the reality is we take it for granted every time we just say we're saved. Or we just think salvation is just a single word or a biblical set of morals and verses that explains something to us cognitively. And it is so much more than that. Salvation itself is a process that began before you were born. It happened when God, outside of time and before your literal creation, elected you out of his gracious will and determined to pour out his love and mercy upon you. And bringing you to that realization, the older and the older you get. And through every spiritual discipline that you can think of, whether it be prayer or scripture reading or fellowship with the saints, that all of these things would reveal a greater and brighter understanding of how God has been in relationship with you your whole life. And we are only just waking up to that fact as he demonstrates more and more of himself to us. As I was trying to consider this week the ways in which we could understand this, I thought one helpful way might be to consider probably the most famous hymn that's ever been, which is called Amazing Grace. I rewrote it out in just a very simple way to make it sound a little more palatable to our ears. So just listen to these words that maybe you've heard before, but explain the way salvation should not be taken for granted. Amazing grace. How sweet is the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I am found. I was blind and now I see. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. It was grace that brought me safe so far, and grace that will lead me home. 
If it seems like that's just a hymn you've heard before, you might not know that John Newton, who wrote that hymn, was a slave owner. He was comfortable with the oppression of many poor and needy people. But he became a Christian, and he spent the rest of his life trying to redeem, trying to save the people that he once tried to subjugate. And the reason was, was because as an experienced man of terrible sin and of doing terrible things to many, many other people, he understood that the slavery of his own heart to sin, once redeemed, will give him new eyes to see that his actions should do the exact same thing as far as he is able. And he saw the fact that we are up against an enemy that is so much greater than us. The Amorites with the height of the cedars and the strength of roots in our lives is the sin that keeps us blind to our mismatched relationship with God and our love of the things that he hates. It keeps us blind in an awareness to the fact that many, many times in our lives, we could be killed and taken from this world. And every single breath we breathe, like we learned last week in Joel, is a reflection of God's patience with us and love for us and care for us to protect not only our salvations, but even ourselves. And the promise that he has, that like John Newton says, one day he will lead us home to the fact that if you are in God's arms, he is a good father who will never let you go. And that kind of redemption is more than just a reason. It's more than just a word that you need to define and figure out and, and now you're in the club or you're in the church or you're good with the people you love again. It's so much more than that. It is an eternal reversal of your circumstances. It becomes something that even winning the lottery is far, far too small of a description of how good God has been to us. And when that is taken for granted, your actions will reflect it. When that is taken for granted, we will never know how good it is, not only to know God, but how good it is to serve God. And we will take for granted his responsibilities that he's given us, and we'll take for granted the redemption that he has bought for us. And that very easily leads us into the third and final thing that we take for granted when it comes to God, which is revelation. Revelation. I'll read this verse. It's verse 11 in chapter 2. And he says, I raised up some of your sons for prophets and your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. The reason that we know the redemption and the responsibilities that God has given us is because he has told it to us directly through raising up here defined as Nazarites and prophets. Nazarites were specifically men who were given particular responsibilities that if they kept them, they would demonstrate a particular kind of blessing to the people. 
and prophets were the New Testament, Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament apostles. They were men who were moved along by the Holy Spirit and spoke God's very words to the people. And their words and their actions were written down for our benefit. And the people in Amos's period did not just disregard these people, but they actively sought to destroy their impact on the rest of God's people, which he says in verse 12, how you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, you shall not prophesy. See, Nazarites were forbidden to drink wine. And in doing so, they tempted them with sin to corrupt them. Now, if you think about it, think about a politician and how if a politician gets in a seriously jeopardizing scandal, now we might think it's just him and just his family that suffers from it. But if that politician has good policies, policies that will benefit his constituency, his people, his, his order and the community that he is called to serve, and he removes himself, it could destroy and have serious consequences for the people for which he dictates policy to. Our generation is full of pastors who go through something so similar that if they disqualify themselves, if they remove themselves by committing particular kinds of sin, that they don't, and their family aren't the only ones who fail from receiving the kind of blessing it is to serve the people of God, but the people fail in losing a leader. And when these people actively went out of their way to remove God's servants from their midst, it was a direct denial that God should have any say in their life. When Christ asks the question to his disciples and his apostles that he raised up, if they would leave him, Peter responded quickly in John 6 by saying, where else can we go, Lord, for you have the words of eternal life. And those words, those same words, 750 years before Peter thought that, the people of Israel completely rejected that. Now again, if we take that and come back to our time, this is the question you might have asked, and I've heard this question before. It's the question of, listen, I don't hate the Bible. I don't hate the Bible like those people do. I just don't want to read it because it doesn't feel real. And listen, them rejecting the Bible and them rejecting the direct words of God is ridiculous because they saw signs and wonders and amazing things. But I haven't seen that. So for me, the Bible is just confusing and it's not real. And if that is the kind of question that you have on your heart, the same man, Peter, who said that Christ's words were the words of eternal life has something interesting to say about that. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 19. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 17 to 19. What Peter does is he describes one of the most amazing events in all of the gospel history, which is him witnessing the transfiguration of Christ the full glory and power and majesty of Christ was brightly illuminated to him on the mountain. And when Elijah and Moses showed up, they were absolutely awestruck by seeing God as God. 
And as Peter recounts this in his letter in 2 Peter, you would think what he's doing is saying that moment and saying, listen, I saw that, so you should listen to me. This verifies me as someone worth listening to. My testimony is important. And he doesn't do that. He had this experience in which every charismatic person in the world Every person who claimed that heaven was for real, or they heard the words of God audibly spoken to them, would be jealous of Peter's account. And he switches it in verse 19 when he says this, but we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you would do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, and the day dawns, and the morning star rises in your hearts." What Peter says is, if you think my experience is amazing, why don't you read the Bible? Because it has the better description and evidential proof of every moment that God has interacted with mankind for their good. The Bible was better than his experience of the full glory of God. And that should hit us like a ton of bricks as to how vital the Bible is in the life of the Christian. Because of the way that the Israelites took it for granted, Amos tells them in chapter 8, verses 11 and 12 of this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but a thirst of hearing the words of the Lord. They will wander from sea to sea and from north to east, and they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. And you know what? The last minor prophet that we will deal with is the book of Malachi. And when Malachi ends, that silence comes 400 years. A people who used to consistently hear God speak to them and experience relationship with them. And they forsook it because they loved sin instead of God. And as a consequence, their children and their children's children and their children's children's children went into exile and heard nothing from God for 400 years. That should give us a taste of the privilege that revelation is to us. The privilege it is and the order of which God has given us his greatest gifts to not take for granted. And you can see how all three of these things work together so perfectly. How God has revealed his very words through prophets and apostles and written them down. His very revelation. And that revelation reveals the pinnacle of his truth, which is we are redeemed people. How it reveals how God has saved us, though we are unworthy of saving. And as a response of understanding how deep a love that is, we would be responsible. We would understand the kind of motivation by which we would seek to honor the Lord. And in our lives, it just feels like we take it for granted when we say, God is silent in my life. How we react like the psalmist so often where we say, God's not here. But we know that God is here. 
Because even in those 400 years of silence for the Israelites, one day the word returned. And it didn't return as audible words. It returned as a man. John chapter 1 says that Jesus Christ as manifested in the flesh was the word of God. That that very word was made incarnate and dwelt among people and explained to spiritually impoverished and needy people saying, I will provide everything you need. And in explaining that to us, and in that motivating us to desire to know him better and to love him deeper, we would not be like the Israelites and we would never, ever take that message for granted. And it would motivate us to be perfect people. Not perfect because we do everything perfectly, but perfect because we know that Christ's sacrifice was for our behalf and it was perfect. I think the best way to end this, to give you a taste of the kind of way that God likes to illustrate these truths for us, is actually looking at Amos himself. I don't know if you've noticed, but for the minor prophets we've done so far, we've never talked about the prophet themselves. And there's a reason for that. Not only with the time constraint, but the fact that Obadiah was a real guy, but we don't know who he was. And Joel was a real person, and we don't know who he was, but Amos describes who he was when he stands in chapter 7 before the king and a false prophet. He explains to them who he was when he says in chapter 7, verses 14 and 15, I was no prophet, nor the son of a prophet. I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore trees. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people, Israel. Isn't it just amazing that the man who God used to preach to a people who hated the lowest of society was himself a man from the lowest of society? He was a shepherd, like King David was before he was king. He was nobody. But even himself being called by God and speaking the words of God was a daily illustration to them of how God calls people out of nothing and he makes them everything through his grace. And he demonstrated that when Christ himself came as a baby. It's absolutely crazy to me to consider the fact that just like he was a shepherd and King David was a shepherd. Beside Christ's own parents, the first people to hear the message of the gospel proclaimed from angels in heaven were shepherds. The lowest people in society. The people who Christ would consistently use them as a description of himself, as the chief shepherd who will gather his sheep to them. And it's even cooler to think that Amos was from Tekoa. Tekoa was very close to Bethlehem. So it could actually have been that the ancestors of Amos, 750 years later, were the same people, the same shepherds, who saw the angels preach that from heaven. 750 years later. God's consistent trend in history is to love the people who are unloved and disregarded. 
If we understand that property properly, taking that for granted is going to be nearly impossible. We're not going to be perfect, and we are not going to be earning our way into heaven, but in Christ doing that for us and from the full acceptance and understanding of that in our hearts, it would move us to be people whom God would be pleased with because they act like their father who has called them their own. Let's pray. God, in a difficult text and in a difficult place to understand you, we we know that it is hard to pay attention to your word. But we readily admit it is not because your word is boring. It is because we are people so easily bored and flattered by our own wants and desires. But you are a good and gracious king who adamantly and excitedly reveals these things to us consistently, that we would understand the depth of the beauty of revelation and therefore understand the beauty and depth of your redemption for us and therefore be motivated to be better people for you. Let your love for us motivate our love for others and help us to be people who see the spiritually low and needy, those people that we know who do not know you, that we would talk to them about the truth of Christ, being motivated by that truth being revealed to us. Let us be salt and light in this world and move us to understand you more and more. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you, guys. We're going to do small groups. I think you guys know where the people are.